Good morning. It's Saturday. Welcome to Right on SC. Casey and Rex here with you every Saturday morning. I, I should turn the music down and I'd be able to hear myself a little bit better. Good morning, Rex. How are you? Good. Uh, let me turn you Doing on. Doing very good. Yeah? Yes. If you were any better, there'd be two of you? Yes, exactly. Uh, that's my fa- I respond to that question all the time. People are like, how are you, Casey? I'm so good. No, no. I just there could be the- two of me. One of the, uh, the the chapters of my latest book, so I just feel I always feel very happy after that. Let's start with that. What's what? Uh, so uh, this is an accomplishment. Tell us about the chapter. It's chapter us. seventeen. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Moving so, on. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> no, no, but at the every, you know, I feel I feel panicked because I changed the ending. Okay. So I have to go back and do all these rewrites. Right. But at the same time, I feel it's like you know, at the end of every chapter, it always feels like an achievement. Where I feel elated, and then of course I panic as I go into the next chapter, that it has to you know keep up the pace. Ah, this roller coaster writing life. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> you know, your highs don't last nearly long enough. Right, but and it's the panic, magical. Oh, it's magical when you get it, but then you you plunge right back into the panic phase of okay, let's make sure this continues on, or am I doing it right, or is this make any sense whatsoever? You know, it's interesting you say that. We So this is right on SC. Welcome back to the program. Saturday mornings, we're on MakeThePointRadio.com and also 100.7 The Point here locally in Columbia, South Carolina. Rex and Casey with you every Saturday. Um, our show notes are out on the blog, right on SC.blog. And all that to say, it's really funny that you talk about it that way because Jody and I had a conversation yesterday. Jody is my my big-time beta reader. She's my, my writing soulmate. And uh, she was talking about working on this book, Jubilee Bells, and she was saying that she has gone back through and been able to pull out the things that were she could tell that this was just her like emotional catharsis part of the writing and now they don't really make sense in the story anymore and so she's sort of ripping yeah out, i like, hate weeds. doing those parts god yeah and then she's like she says after she got some distance on it so now you're in chapter 17 this is the book about the friend of yours that died right no i thought you were talking about the one that we're... No, no no that one's already finished that one's out oh. that one's out of looking for a publisher oh okay this is a different one. Oh. Okay, based on a prison. Ah, oh, this is the one you were doing the research for. Yes, yes, yes. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I was doing the research as I was writing it. So this one might not have as much emotional catharsis to it. Not at all. It just feels like a product. <laughs> um, it's it. You know, it feels like I believe uh, there's aspects of it that I believe in when they talk. Right. Essentially, the girl, you know, has to take a part-time job, and then she ends up having, you know, in this. Uh, other dimensional space having to justify the existence of the human race. Okay. And the person she's up against is uh, one of the worst serial kills, uh, killers ever. Okay. So he has to make one argument, she has to make the other. Nice. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> but you're in the you're so in that, creation. So that part where they're both making their passionate speeches, Right. that's the part where I put myself in there, okay. where I put my personal beliefs one way and the other. Um, and that 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 that's really focused, but the rest of it, you know, I don't care if this character gets killed. You're debating care. it with yourself, huh? Yeah, pretty much. So I think I did a good job. Well, I got in the head of this character, and I was like, okay, is the female the main character? Yes, she's your protagonist. Yeah, my first female protagonist too. Nice. Yeah, that's interesting. I based it on my wife, so ah, we heart cat. Yes, but. <laughs> That's a, okay, so you're in the creation phase now, though, right? But I'm working on Before Pittsburgh and trying to get it ready for publication. And um, as I'm moving it out of Scrivener and into Word, I'm finding gaps and I'm writing new content there. So when you said earlier, like, 
uh, am I doing this right? Is this the right thing to do? I'm not really sure. And all that sort of panic. That's what I'm experiencing right now. Oh, yeah. I'm, it, I should, all of these, the, the drafts should all completely be done. But I'm writing fresh content. And that is terrifying because it's supposed to pretty much be ready at this point. Well, see, the problem is, you see, the, 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 um, for me at least, right? Because I don't know how it's going to end yet. I mean, I do and I don't. Mm -hmm. I, I've got like five different scenarios that it could possibly end. But the, the high point was, you know, the climax was that part where they're making the speeches. And after that, it's just, you know, wrapping it up. Right. So it'll, 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 it might seem like there's all this, and there's a lot of extra stuff to, to take care of. Yeah. And I don't know how much of it I want to spend time on. I got you. I'm excited for you. Thank you. <laughs> It's fun I, to talk I, to an author that's like super passionate and excited about what they're doing, as opposed to like I don't know, I haven't been able to write anything for days. Oh god, no, this no, you understand. pandemic is really killing my drive, dude. Well, it it did did kill my drive. I expected to be done with this two months ago. Oh really? Yes, I wanted to be done with it two months ago. The pandemic killed your writing drive. Um, I forced myself. I just I couldn't get as much out as I wanted to. I, I put myself a daily goal, and I never met it for months. I wrote, but I wrote some of it. Okay. So I always got part of it there. Right. So I mean, but uh, I want, I want, I want to be uh, well moved on because I got other projects I want to move on to. That's how I feel about before Pittsburgh. It's like I'm just, I'd like to put it to bed. I'd like to but be done with this. I want to do it, but if you rush these things, then you don't do it well. Correct. Take your time. You got to take your time. That's why I always tell my students, it's you know, when they're reading, balance, when they're yeah. when they're doing their thing, you know. Strange dichotomy. You know, don't wait till three o'clock in the morning to get started on your paper. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have to tell my students the same thing. Do not put this off till the day before it's due. You will not have time to read through it and make sure it makes sense. Yeah, I think they always miss the word not. <sighs> always get so much garbage. Okay. Uh, we are talking about today, interestingly enough, we're not talking about the writing process. We're talking about metaphor. Right. And prophecy. So I ran the chat on Tuesday. Uh, you can go out to Twitter at 6 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. We have a tweet chat, and uh, the hashtag is WSChat. And I went out to Twitter on Tuesday, and I did this tweet chat experiment where I put metaphors against prophecies and got people to try to figure out if these are the same thing or different things, and how do they work, and is there even anything really to talk about here. So we're going to start with defining these things. What is a metaphor? What is a prophecy? How do you use them in the story? Right. And then I want to talk about why I paired them up. And I actually, for the first time ever in our show notes, um, there's a chart. There's a table in the show notes. <laughs> and the table does a, a cool little compare and contrast. So I went full-blown English teacher nerd on this one, uh, metaphors and prophecies. So let's start with metaphors. Metaphors, and here's uh, where I think uh, people get lost in the metaphor simile thing. Of course, similes use the words like and as. That's the big difference between the two. But also, uh, metaphors are meant to explain something more complicated. Something really complicated gets compared to something that's relatively easy to understand. And that's how the metaphor uh, translates the concept, right? Or translates the idea. So it's either something that's really hard to understand or something like abstract, right? So you think of something like the prodigal son story. The prodigal son story is a metaphor for how human beings turn away from God and sin against God, but God always welcomes them back, right? Mm. So these classic sort of um, teaching parables and that kind of thing fall into this category of metaphor. But I think that novice writers frequently use metaphors that are trite, that are overdone, yes. that are cliche. <laughs> that they've seen, uh, they've seen themselves. Yeah. 
And when we and, and when you pepper your work with these kinds of trite metaphors, for example, um, I didn't put any bad ones. That's not true. Here's a couple of bad ones. Ready? Love is a battlefield. Oh, my God! You've given me something to chew on. Uh, all right. You know, I don't even think of that as a metaphor anymore. He's just blowing off steam. Okay. Yeah. But that's so that's so ubiquitous with uh, within our culture, yeah, within our manner of talking that it's almost not a metaphor. Are these like these are like idioms though, right? Well, because- idiom is a colloquial metaphor. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, it's the same thing. It is an idiom, and it doesn't translate well. Let's say into French. He has the heart of a lion. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. I see We're what you're saying. Break. When we come back, more metaphors, more prophecies. This is right on SC. Don't go away. It's 100.7. The book. Good morning. We're back. It's Saturday. It's right on SC. Casey and Rex here with you every Saturday morning from the makethepointradio.com and 100.7 The Point Studios here in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, I'm glad to have you with us. We've been talking about metaphor, and before we went to break, we did some really bad metaphors, and I want to talk about a few good ones. Well, it's not just bad metaphors. They're cliché. Yeah, cliché. To the point where, again, I, you know, you said blow off steam. I didn't even think of that as a metaphor. I, it just seemed like a normal way of saying something. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's harder to find the bad ones because they they do seem to be uh, what, did you, what was the word you used ubiquitous. Yes, um, but they're just everywhere, right? Um, but I want to give a couple of good ones here. Uh, so I mentioned before that metaphors are about explaining the complex, um, and I found this one from the book Matilda by Rodal. The parents looked upon Matilda as a particular, as in particular, as nothing more than a scab. A scab is something you have to put up with until time comes when you can pick it off and flick it away. These are the parents about their child. Yeah. It tells you everything you need to know about how they spoke to her, how they treated her, whether they cared for her, whether they showed her any kind of love. A scab is not valued at all, right? And so the fact that he uses a scab as a metaphor to describe how the parents think of their kid tells you so much that's what we're looking for when we talk about metaphor. We're looking for something really rich, really um, something that makes you go, yes, I get it. I fully understand. And it's an economy of words. He doesn't have to go on and on for four pages about how mean they are to her. All he has to say is they thought of her as a scab. Right. Very good. Right. <laughs> I was kind of blown away by that one. And then the other one, which I well, was always not wrote surprised. children's books, too, though. So right. You have to have, so when you're doing that, you have to have the economy of words. That's true. Um, and the next one's from John Green, and he writes young adult novels, and so it's the same. Um, the son was a toddler, insist- insistently refusing to go to bed. It was past 8.30 and still light. The son was a toddler. So what I loved about this was if you think about a toddler, how do you feel about a toddler that refuses to go to bed? It's annoying. It's obnoxious, right? right? And you feel guilty about how annoyed you are with this toddler because you're supposed to care for this toddler and be nice to this toddler. But really, just go to bed, toddler. Um, And so I just thought thought that was a great metaphor, too. When we get these really good ones like that, those are the ones that make me just sort of close the book and go, ah, that's amazing. Do you use metaphor very much in your work? I don't. Occasionally. Um, I'm always afraid that it's going to sound terrible or stupid. Right. Um, I, I, I do. I, I try to, but then only if it comes naturally out of the flow of the writing itself. Mm-hmm. When I go back often enough, I just take them out. I don't know how much people enjoy it. Um, 
I think I think it's something you use sparingly. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Um, and it's it's a little bit like profanity in that way. In that yeah, no more than one per page. I would say. There's meant to be. An I mean, impact. not like Shakespeare. I wouldn't put a, even a metaphor per page. I would go. I would go even more economic with it, like maybe one per chapter. Or um, and and here's the thing: choosing the right one, um, because I think sometimes when I draft, I may end up with like three or four, and then as I go back to revise it, I'm like, okay, this is the one that fits here, and I cut the others and get rid of them. Right. Um, so I think that's important too: is go ahead and put as many as you need to in the draft, but as you're going through afterwards, go which what's the one that really makes sense here that really works here. Uh, we don't certainly don't need them all. You don't need multiple metaphors to describe the same thing. You just need the one really good one. When yeah, you, yeah. Go ahead. All right. No, um, sorry. You're fine. It's often can be used for comic effect, too, though. If yes. Used. I, especially when it's done bad. I think the worst one I ever heard was, and this was in an episode of Blackadder, where he goes, disease and depredation stalk our land like two great stalking things. <laughs> Like that, well, it's the worst metaphor I ever heard, but it's brilliant. Yeah, well, it sounds like that Josh Whedon kind of thing. Like it's so it's self-reflective. Like I understand this is a bad metaphor, but I also understand I'm supposed to put a metaphor here. Right. Insert metaphor here. Right. Um, there's a lot of that in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. If you read any of the transcripts Ugh. from Buffy, and you hear these like her attempting to put things into context using metaphor, right. and then going. Yeah, that's not going to work, is it? Right. Um, I like a I, I like a character that tries a metaphor, or a character that maybe is trying to explain something through metaphor and then realizes the metaphor doesn't work. I like the self awareness of that. Um, all right, so he, let's talk. Let's shift a little bit here to prophecy. We paired these two up because last week you mentioned Odysseus, and I admit to not being the Odyssey scholar that you are, but you mentioned <laughs> as I was talking about reading Circe. <clears throat> and uh, you were saying that Odysseus has left his home, and while he was gone, the young people have grown up inept and incapable of caring for themselves, and so right. his kingdom is falling into ruin. And it's just feeding upon itself. Right. And as we were walking down the hall, I was like, wow, that feels prophetic. <laughs> that feels like we're moving in a particular direction in this particular in our country, right? And Because we often off off camera, off uh, off mic, talk politics. And so uh, as we were walking, I was like, we should do a whole show on prophecies. And you were like, and metaphors. And I was like, what? So at the time I thought, okay, that sounds great. Well, then I went home and started looking at them. These are not the same thing, prophecies and metaphors. No, not particularly. <laughs> so a prophecy is uh, frequently used in, in... It's a device. It is a device. And it's frequently, frequently used as a, a kind of foreshadowing. Um, to, to direct how things are going to go. Right. Or in after effect to explain to us how things have happened that way because they're part of this prophecy. Right. Right. So in what genre do we see prophecy most well, frequently? Well, it's, it's mostly in, you know, uh, every, uh, it's, it's mostly used in, let's say, uh, a fantasy. Right. Sometimes in science fiction. They even mentioned it. But the problem is it's often done badly in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I'll it's agree with that. Ham fisted, <laughs> especially uh, yeah. They use it in the in the Star Wars prequels. There's a prophecy about bringing balance to the force. Well, what does that mean? Right. You know who made it? Why do you believe it? Right. You know that sort of thing. I mean, if there's a prophecy, it has to come from a reliable source, or at least a semi-reliable source. Right. Or at least you know. Well, so that's what we a got known into. Known source. 
in the chat on Tuesday, we started talking about how accurate does it have to be and, and the source, what level of accuracy does that person well, have? Well, it's always do it, – it usually goes hand-in-hand hand with the um, chosen one trope. Right. How do you know he's the chosen one? Well, he fits the prophecy. Right. But then, you know, the prophecy – the interesting thing was, you know, I mean, part of it stems from actual prophecies here on Earth. Right. Um, especially concerning the Messiah. Right. Biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy. prophecy about the rise of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people fit it. Right? He would be despised by his own people. He would be just killed by them at, the, at a young age, like 33 or something like that. Right. You know, and it was pointed out in I, Claudius, that the Emperor Caligula fit the description of this uh, Messiah as it's been described in, I think it was, was Isaiah and maybe Daniel or something like that. I do not pretend to be a biblical scholar, but right. I do. I'm picking up what you're putting down because here's the thing: a lot of times prophecy comes out of a faith system, right? And even in fantasy fiction, the prophecy comes out of a faith system. And to make it work, to make it in your story work, that faith system has to be pretty well established. And the people who deliver the prophecy, whether they're scholars, whether they're priests, whether they're monks, whatever, they have to be people who can be relied upon to tell the truth. Well, and sort to of direct people in the right direction. Part of that is it has to be part of the holy, uh, holy ritual, holy uh, literature that's considered to be the truth. Right. Because we don't know who wrote, uh, you know, the Book of Daniel. We don't know who wrote Book of Isaiah. Right. You know. We, so they, because they do a pretty good job with prophecy in the Game of Thrones series, right? Where you see these aged scholars who know what these books have oh, been yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. For, it's even more so in the, in the actual novels. There's, 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 but the, you know, the thing in the novels is. You know, there's it's conflicting. Mm -hmm. The various prophecies was he this guy, is he this guy, and they they go back and forth, and none of it matches up. The other place I think that we see prophecy in current in fiction that is currently being written is historical fiction. People will use prophecy in historical fiction because um, it was it was a, a way of explaining things before we had science, right? Before right. we had the advanced capabilities of science that we have today. And so if you go back in, in any era where somebody's trying to make sense of something, they'll use that prophecy teaching mechanism to show this is how things are supposed to be and this is how things are going to be in the future. And so I think we see a good bit of prophecy in historical fiction as well. So historical fiction, fantasy fiction, you'll see it show up a good bit. But I also think we're seeing it in modern commercial realism. And I think we see it as irony and as a tool for sort of self-awareness. And I think that people use it in commercial fiction almost as a self-fulfilling prophecy where people will say, don't let this happen to you. And then, of course, it actually happens to them. Right. And so I think that's probably right now the most interesting use of prophecy. I, I, I haven't used it. I just, see, I just see it as a sort of a lazy device. You think so? I think so. I think it's overdone. Quite frankly, I, it's only useful nowadays if you're making fun of it, in my opinion. Yeah, which is why I think it's so interesting in commercial fiction right now. Right. When, when we see it. But even then, it's kind of shallow. We're looking at, like, weathermen and, you know, business analysts and financial analysts and political right. analysts. These people, sports analysts, right, um, that are going to say, well, he doesn't. He he doesn't throw the long ball and uh, and this defense is too tight on the uh, on the line of scrimmage and so there's no way that this quarterback's going to be successful against this defense. Okay, that's a prophecy, right? <laughs> then we go out there, we play the game, and sure enough, that quarterback has found a way to throw over the defense, or they're going to run the ball, or something to that effect, right? So we see these modern prophets in a lot of different places there, and and to the political analysts and whatever you guys that are listening to us are listening to talk radio. Talk radio is 
full of self-fashioned profits, right? That's all we do. Oh, yeah, pretty much. Is, is talk about what's going to happen, right? And speculate on what's going to happen. Um, and, and there's no uh, call, account, accountability. There's no, people aren't being held uh, uh, to be accurate. They don't require that we're accurate well, in any way. Because it's less fun. I mean, look at the... Uh, well, the most modern prophet or the one everyone keeps going to is Nostradamus. Right. For some unknown reason. <laughs> he's, he's never been ever, right. <laughs> I don't know if he's been right. His stuff is so vague. Have you ever read his prophecies? Do I look like somebody that spends a lot of time reading? No, I read uh, horoscopes are as effective to me as the Nostradamus prophecies. Well, I've read care. them all and, they, and they're, they're incredibly vague. Well, that's they the can point be of used... prophecy, though. If it's vague, it can be applicable to anything. Well, I guess it's, it's dealing with its longevity, but it doesn't... Uh, what's the purpose of a prophecy, then? It's to provide uh, a sense of security. It's to give people a sense of assuredness that something is, is preordained. Good. Something good is going to happen. Such right? as the prophecies about, say, Jesus' return or King Arthur's return. Right. The idea that we're things are going to get better. That's what a prophecy is meant okay, to be. Okay, good. I mean, that's practically what it's supposed to be, right? Right. Not actual prediction of the future. No, I don't think so. So part of the conversation on Tuesday night was with I mean, one that, of our... The, I mean, that's the ideal version that it show tells you what will happen. But in practical, from a very practical effect, all it does is give comfort to the present. Exactly, right? Which is like a lot of other faith systems. On Tuesday night, one of our um, frequent contributors to our Tuesday chat, she chronicle, uh, chronicles psychics. She works with people who consider themselves to be clairvoyant, and she interviews them, and she writes up their interviews and transcripts and, and on our blog. And she and I were talking about the accuracy um, wh what is required of these psychics in terms of accuracy to, for people to believe them, that they are, in fact, able to predict the future? And she goes, oh, most of them wouldn't tell you they can predict the future. They would just tell you that they have an understanding of how things are going to unfurl. That's, that's so they don't get sued. <laughs> right. Well, that's what it's about. <laughs> it's a legal disclaimer. Yeah, it pretty much is. Yeah. I have a feeling, a sense that this might have some impact in your future. You know, might have. Right. A lot of weasel words in there. Yeah. That's because they're all frauds. <laughs> Lena, I'm sensing you're in some danger. Yes. All right. We're... This house is now clean. <laughs> we're going to the bottom of the hour break. The news is coming up for you. Don't go away. It's right on SC on 100.7 The Point. Good morning. We're back. It's Saturday, which means it's right on SC. Casey and Rex here with you every weekend for about an hour to talk about the writing craft. And uh, because we're only on the air for an hour, we typically don't take calls. Um, and so, but I would encourage you to participate with us in some way. If these topics that we're talking about are of interest to you, you can find us online. Right on SC.blog is where the show notes are. But we're also on Twitter at Right on SC. And we're also on Facebook. You can find us Facebook.com slash Right on SC. Leave us a comment. Send us a note. Ask us a question. By all means, we'd be glad to interact with you and, of course, mention you on the air. I want to give a special shout-out to our authors who are featured authors on the Right on SC website. That includes Carolyn Hartley and... Uh... <laughs> And our girl, Anna, I'm um, just kind of chuckling because I was just putting away Anna's sweatshirt the other day that I borrowed from her and have not yet given back. Um, so Carolyn Hartley, of course, is a she's a digital forensic expert, and she um, is 
writing crime novels, which is fantastic. Then, of course, C.J. Heigelman, who is uh, an author of contemporary and historical fiction. His most recent book, uh, An Uncommon Folk Rhapsody, is fantastic. You've got to take a look at that. Uh, that's C.J. And then, as I mentioned, Anna, Kerr, Anna Fitzcurry, and she is a Christian author who writes um, self-help and fitness kinds of books. And so, oh, yeah, um, Was it Jesus Walk? Uh, Christ Walk. Christ Walk, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, all those featured authors, if you'd like to be a featured author on the show, by all means, get in touch with us. We'd love to have you um, as part of our featured author uh, portion of the website. Okay, that's all my shout-outs. Patreon.com slash WriteOnSC to become a patron and a featured author and all that sort of suchness. All right, great. Okay, good. <laughs> well, we need more. We do. I'd like to build this community, and we've been at this for over a year now. Uh, we're on episode 117, so we, we, we've really been doing this for quite a while, two years, and I would just love to build out this community even further into South Carolina and really be featuring South Carolina authors. So if you're out there, you have something to share, uh, you want to be part of this, by all means, go out to write on SC um, on patreon.com and learn how to become a patron. All right, we've been talking about metaphors and prophecies. Before, in the first half of the hour, we kind of broke down what is a metaphor, how is it used. We broke down prophecies and how are they used. And now I want to talk about um, how these two things may or may not be the same or different. All right. All right, so let's start with uh, how easy they are to use. How easy is it to, to create a metaphor? Well, uh, a unique metaphor or one of the bad ones, the cliches you mentioned earlier? Because the cliches we drop into almost on a habit. Yeah. And that's the part of the problem, too. That's one of the reasons we have to go back and edit so heavily, is to you know if you want if you want your your book to actually be interesting or different in some particular way, you got to put some work into it. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I think the bad metaphors show up, or even I think metaphors in general for writers show up because we read so much, and then we and as you're writing, the more you write, the more those metaphors just become part of the language that you use. You absorb it. And the key is to be in revision, brutal about those metaphors, and be striking anything that doesn't contribute to the story um, especially if a metaphor is difficult to understand or people go i just don't see the connection there and that's where your writers group can help out quick shout out to the south carolina writers association if you need a writing workshop go to myscwa.org and find one near you but yeah i think then your writers group can say to you this metaphor doesn't work for me and here's why and as the author then you go okay here's you know it's not it's not working it's not jamming but people use metaphors a lot in poetry yes so if you read poetry or write poetry, you're probably a metaphor junkie. Maybe. I don't know. Um, I, I haven't read much modern poetry. That's the problem. Yeah, I don't read a whole lot of poetry at all. I don't yeah, understand I don't, it. I'm sorry, I mean, so I, I wouldn't be the one to discuss it. Well, that's fine. I mean, I don't do blank verse. I think it's terrible. We, we can move on from I think, I think. I think, yeah, well, uh, you don't use, I think, uh, from the 1970s on, most of the poetry has been bad. I don't think that's true. All right. Give me one, really okay, give me, give me one good poem after 1975. How would I possibly know that when I don't read poetry? I just okay. said that aloud. Well, then, okay, fine. Then, then I'm uh, 100% right because uh, you can't name one. You hear that? Okay, so that's a call out to our to Tim Conroy and Cassie Primo Steele and Al Black and all of our poets here in the Columbia area. Send us your really good poetry. Uh, Len Lawson, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're listening. Right. And please make means. it rhyme. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
Uh, okay. Yeah. At some point, maybe we get a third host for this show, and well, that person can mm. rep the poets. But uh, I always tell, but I tell people too all the time, like, they're, oh, why didn't you have a poet on your show? Because they always want to read their work. Yes. The minute the poet comes on the show, they want to read a poem on the show. I'm like, stop talking, right? Like, like let's just have a conversation. All right. Um, okay. So ease of use. Metaphors are really easy. They show up all the time. The, using a good one or finding a good one is a little bit harder. What about prophecies? Are prophecies easy to use? Oh, yeah, they're easy, um, especially after you write the book. <laughs> it's easy well, to that's put why you afterwards. said you pointed out in historical fiction. I mean, it's easy to come up with a prophecy saying that Abraham Lincoln will be assassinated. Right. Because we know it's true. Right. I mean, the problem is when you do it in historical fiction, the prophecy, and they'll, they usually try to strive against it. And there, you know, they're going to fail. Yeah. So, I think or I remember reading one book during the Civil War, and the main character was psychic, and he had a psychic flash about something happening to Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln. And I was like, "Well, gee." And the Titanic's going to sink. <laughs> and the Titanic's going to sink. Yeah. So I think it, um, the whether or not prophecy in your historical fiction or in your fantasy fiction is effective depends on how unique it is because you mentioned before it's tied very closely to this chosen one trope right and so if you're going to use a prophecy in your fantasy fiction like help us understand what the value of this prophecy really is and then if people are fighting against it i want to see that i want to see like why would somebody reject a prophecy and then why are people believing in the prophecy and how Far are they willing to go to ensure that the prophecy is protected and it actually comes to pass? Yeah. That creates a significant drama. Like, I think that's really interesting. Well, I think it'd be interesting if they had two competing um, prophecies. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that might get you interested too, right? Like, right. because then you really do start questioning the validity of the prophecy and why we should believe it and what are we called to do to protect this prophecy. Yeah, I think all of that is really interesting. But if it's simply a way of explaining something that you couldn't otherwise figure out how to explain, well, that's because the prophecy says it. Right. Uh, I yeah. don't know that I buy that. I don't like it either. And it shows up a lot in young adult fantasy fiction. Um, because oh, it shows up. They used to use it. They started for a while there every year. There was the prophecy in Doctor Who. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, I almost can see that since they go through time. Yeah. So, so <laughs> well, then we think of the, because uh, you mentioned before, the first three Star Wars. We don't need a prophecy to tell us that Anakin is special. Right. It's it's superfluous. The idea that Qui-Gon says, well, the prophecy says, la, la, la. Like, we don't need that. This no. kid is clearly special, right? There's not any reason that Anakin, that that he can't just convince Qui-Gon to take a, him Which on. was a problem, which was a problem. Yeah. I think, you know, Anakin should have been a very minor background character, especially in the first one. Right. And then slowly come up. It's kind of like when you're dealing with the English Civil War. You know, Cromwell, who eventually rose to power off of that, was not a major character to begin with. Right. All the big boys were other people. Right. Um, that's because well, when the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the troops stormed Parliament and tried to arrest a bunch of people. They didn't, Cromwell was there, they didn't try to arrest him because he was just some guy. Right. Nobody paid that much attention to right. him. Right, and then he sort of ra rose up from that. And this particular one, everyone's everyone's got their eyes on Anakin from the beginning, and it's just bad. Yeah, well, so that's the thing is those first two, those, those first three films become Anakin's origin story. They become Darth Vader's origin story. Yeah, but my point is you don't need three, you don't three, three movies to do Star Wars, to do a, it should have been the, the, the origin story of Star Wars itself. Right. 
not just one guy. You don't need three movies right. to do that. You could have done that in one. I agree. And I also agree that had the first film been more focused on the tension between the Jedi, who's unhappy with the Jedi, who who doesn't trust the Jedi, like give us sort of the dark side of the Jedi. Like why would why would anybody want to fight against what we have come to know as the justice in this in this galaxy? And so I think that would have been a lot more interesting than just watching, you know, Anakin race pod things. Pods. Like Oh, that's because, you know, I think George Lucas fell in love with the technology. Yeah. And just said, well, I, literally anything I want to come up with is what I can do. Yeah. And he just. <laughs> yeah. Poor George Lucas. Okay, so we're talking about metaphors and prophecies. And the first question we have was, which one's easier to use? So which is easier, metaphor or prophecy? Well, metaphor. Yeah. The metaphor is just there. Yeah. And it's it's um, just part of our regular vocabulary as a writer. The second uh, question or the second sort of compare and contrast here, who who uses the metaphor and who uses the prophecy. And what I mean by this is I think in, um, in the case of a metaphor, this is the author, this is the writer using these things, right? And so that's how the writer sort of inserts themselves in the story. But in a prophecy, the prophecy is being delivered by characters and it comes up out of a really good one comes up out of the faith system. It comes up out of the plot almost organically and and related to those characters organically. And, and the author doesn't have to insert the prophecy unless of course it's poorly done, which is what we're talking about with, with star Wars. But I mean, if, if the prophecy is organic, then it's the characters that use it. If the metaphor is used by the character, people are going to be like, wait, what? The characters use metaphors? Is that a thing? Um, your new character, your female protagonist, is she a first-person narrator? No. Okay. I don't do first-person narrators anymore. I've quit that. Okay. I just I, I find it too limiting. Okay. So uh, then all those meta- all the metaphors that are in your book will then be your metaphors yes. as the storyteller. Yes. I yeah. find it easier. I think it, since, uh, since you know, I mean, when I was doing it first person, all of the all all of those characters just turned into uh, you know masks for myself. Yeah. So I feel it better to do more of a Henry James. I know you love that. Yes. Heavy-handed. I, I love heavy-handed narration. <laughs> a lot with of lots of my personal you. opinions shoved in there. Yeah. My jaundiced view of the world. I think it might be why I'm so I limit metaphors so much because I do write so much first person, and people don't think in metaphors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know we speak in it, but again, we only speak. We the only time you see it is like a cliched metaphor. Right, it's not part of regular conversation. Right, so it's hard to make a character that uses metaphors. Although I will say, I think it's compelling if you have a character that uses bad metaphors repeatedly. Right, <laughs> so if you have a character whose trait is use of bad metaphors. We're going to run to break. On the other side, more on metaphors and prophecies. This is Right on SC on 100.7 The Point. Good morning, we're back. Right on SC. Casey and Rex here with you every Saturday on MakeThePointRadio.com and 100.7 The Point out of Columbia, South Carolina. Last segment of the day, we've been talking about metaphors and prophecy. And during the break, we were trying to figure out which Shakespearean play Falstaff shows up in. And so I think we're going to do Henry it in- the Fourth, Part One, Part Two, and he's mentioned in Henry the Fifth. There we go. His death is mentioned. So we were talking about metaphor and and the Merry Wives can- of Windsor. 
how you could use a bad metaphor or how you could use a character that uses metaphor. And I said Falstaff as this sort of famous kind of bumbling teacher type character. Oh, yes. Where he's meant to be instructive to Henry and instead he kind of ends up being telling him the complete opposite of what he should be doing. Right? Yeah, but Henry understands that. Henry sees it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he sees the the, the falseness of it. He's the false mentor trope. Right. But, well, he wasn't a trope at the time, though. Like, give Shakespeare his due. No, okay. He, he sort of invented the false mentor trope. Um, but, yeah, so I like the idea that a character can use metaphor, um, if it's a, especially if it's somebody who's trying to teach others. So you have this, like, wise old uncle or this grandfather or somebody. Well, he's, he's almost a proto-Fagan, really, Falstaff. Uh, explain. Well, you know, Fagan from uh, Oliver Twist. Yes. All right. He he brings in Oliver Twist and he teaches him how to steal, how to pickpocket. Right. So then Fagin would be a Falstaff type character. Yes. Falstaff, of course, came first. Right. Yes. Um, so I think if if you have a character that's going to deliver metaphor in an inaccurate way for the purpose of either comic relief or um, to further confuse things, I think that could be really effective. Um, but for the most part, the who uses metaphor is that the writer is using the metaphor uh, let's talk about the impact so what's the impact of metaphor on a story when i look at this matilda piece right the impact is depth right depth of thought um well it, it, it elevates it adds it adds a lyrical quality to the prose it adds um yeah the po it adds a certain poeticism to what's happening rather than you just a flat de description right i mean a flat description will work just as well maybe be even a little easier but it'd be it's less interesting to read take your story from a journalism type reporting to right. a lyrical type it depends on how much you actually want to challenge the reader that's part of the problem too yeah, is a, a lot point. of people don't like to be challenged so, <laughs> so you're re your you know, readers uh, may not like your i mean i noticed metaphor. in your reading you don't particularly care to be challenged too much what you're right. You're 100% right. Well, it depends. So I I actually do, I really do enjoy reading a good book that where the prose is like dripping off the pages. I love John Green. I think he's a fantastic writer. Like I've really loved um, The Monsters of Templeton and Lauren Groff. Like these, uh, there are authors that I can't get enough of. But then I read so much. I mean, I'm reading five, six books a week that that's the candy. That's the stuff that How I How can you read five or six books a week? They must be really... I mean, I snap right through them. It doesn't take me long at all to get through these. They must be what? What? They're what, not challenging me at all. That's okay. Why. Yeah. What, these what, are the, 125 pages. These are Kindle Unlimited books, so hard to know how many pages they are. But each of them probably has, they say, five or six hours it'll take to read each book. So. Good God. Yeah. It doesn't take me that long. Because uh, it's all young adult or romance or what? No what, romance. What, what's your okay? You're yeah, I read romance novels. I'm all not right. ashamed of that. That's all a right. thing. There's a lot of metaphors. Flowing around um, the romance novels. Bad ones. His There's staff, his staff no, sprang no, free. No, no, no. <laughs> the show is PG, friend. Okay, fine. <laughs> it's a metaphor. We don't. We don't <laughs> it's a metaphor. I didn't use any bad words. Those are euphemisms, not metaphors. That's a little bit. Different. That's the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. You don't. A metaphor is meant to explain something complex or something abstract. A euphemism is a polite way or a more interesting or or maybe a sexier way of saying something all right impact uh, well we just talked about that so a metaphor is going to try to explain something um, but also the pr 
But, you know, here's the thing. I see a lot of younger writers trying too hard with the metaphors, trying too hard to make their work complex by throwing in a lot of big words. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're trying too hard. It really does. I'll agree with that. Um, it's it's too much of a flow, and you're not going to sell something like that. I also think if you need more than two sentences to explain your metaphor, it's probably not very good. Right. So just that for, like, basic how-to. If you need more than two sentences to explain the metaphor, this is not a good metaphor. Um, and then the, the last question, how do you do it? So in, in the metaphor side, right, um, you can literally just put it right in the sentence it can be at the sentence level it can be at the paragraph level but if you think about a metaphor on a much bigger level right as far as it's a character the character is a metaphor so you mentioned before um uh fagan in oliver twist is this false staff type character is would you consider that to be a metaphor right would fagan be in in terms of like derivative of the false staff scenario well, he's based on an actual guy what is that called again oh <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I don't what is it called when you base it on a real day, on a real uh, day? There's an actual word for it, which is escaping me at the moment. Go to Facebook.com and I'm tell sure us I'm sure my boss is, is screaming at the, at the radio right now. Send him a text. Yes. <laughs> if you know it, I'll give you your phone number over the air and people can just text it. To yeah, you. okay. okay. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about how, how to do this, right? So the first thing on the prophecy is you have to have a reason for it. There has to be a purpose for the prophecy. Yes. And, it, and that purpose should be be i think organic it should be that there's no other way to explain this thing there's no other way to do it if all else fails try a prophecy again again it's just to me it's just it's been overdone it's so lazy i mean the purpose is to show the main character the protagonist is the chosen one usually yeah uh, so i was thinking about the movie willow and how willow. There's, this, oh, yeah. there's this sorry <laughs> there's a uh, a tyrant queen and there's a Those prophecy that a, that a baby will be born and bring down the tyrant queen. Right. And the baby's going to have a mark. Uh, and again. And nobody really knows what the mark is. And nobody really knows who the baby, you know, where the baby is from or anything like that. And so she's just basically blindly killing all these babies because. That's very biblical, too. Yeah. Um, at the same time. Yeah. Where does this prophecy come from? There's, they what, don't explain that. And they don't explain that. But what it does is it, Where it, creates, comes from. it creates the people who want to protect the child and pits them against the people who want to kill the child. Right. So there's the tyrant and her forces who want to keep her in power. And then there's all these other people who want their freedom from her tyranny. And they're pinning all their hopes on this baby, mm -hmm. which is scary and frightening. Yeah. And, and, feels, and, feels and, uh, and Warwick Davis, too. Yes. They're right. pinning their hopes on Warwick Davis, Warwick the baby. And I believe there's a goat in there somewhere. Uh, yeah, well, the one witch that uh, can also help God, Warwick that was Davis. a bad movie. Oh, are you kidding? Val Kilmer? Okay. Long hair? Yeah, he was so dreamy. But <laughs> apart from that... Anything and everything he's ever you done, know, I love that, if, if, if that's If that's your criteria, just get some still shots. You don't have to watch the rest of the movie. Oh, no. I, you know, I actually really liked Willow. I enjoyed Willow. As a kid, like, I thought that As was a As a kid, we it thought was it was terrible. Film. And then the next, the last time I watched it, I tried to get Holly to watch it, and she lost interest almost immediately. Right. The Linny and Squiggy tree kid, the oh, little imps, those, those drove her away. I forgot she was like, about I'm, those I'm as done well. here. I'm done here. Yeah, she was she was having none of that. So, yeah. I, I, I might be one of the only people. And it may be that now I, again, I Again, like again, is, again, I think, I think the prophecy is part of bad literature. Okay. I'll accept that. Uh, honestly, I honestly don't. I, I Very rarely have I seen it used well. 
one where it's vague, they can have multiple interpretations, um, like a Nostradamus one, a true one, so that you got various people trying to compete to fulfill it, but in different ways. No, and causing I, a conflict. That's the only time I've ever seen it really used well. Or whether it turns out to be fake and it's deliberately fake. I didn't read the Lord of the Rings books, but isn't there a prophecy no, in that? No, there there's isn't. never a prophecy. It's just the no. ring shows up. Huh? There, it, there's never what a prophecy. Baby? I said it's just the ring shows up. The, okay, well, I won't get into the history because we don't have enough time. Okay. We got we got five minutes left, but the, the ring doesn't just show up. Okay. It's the It's the one ring. But there's never a prophecy. No, well, there's a song that goes with it. A song, but it's history. Okay. You know, three rings for the Elven Kings, and anyway, it, but it's it's not describing the future; it's describing history. Okay, so that's a good point. When we think about prophecy, is prophecy delivered ahead of time and predicts the future? Because this is what I was asking my psychics person: was how important is it that the prophecy be delivered before well, what comes to pass actually forget, comes in to ancient, pass? In a lot of ancient times, all history was passed down through song. Right. Through, uh, that's how they learned it. That's how it was passed. Uh, like that doesn't answer the question. Well, I think so. I think so. If, let's say that you reach the end of the story um, and you wanted to tack on a little bit of something extra about what would happen in the future. And that as in became, tune in next week. And, yeah, it became, <laughs> and that became a prophecy by accident. Just because, you know, some poet somewhere decided that, uh, you know, the thing needs a little bit, a little bit more of a twist to it. Oh, I got you. Kind of like the death of Arthur, right? He'll return again. He was taken off to the island of Avalon. Right. Also known as the Isle of Apples. And he will return again one day. You know, when, uh, during Britain's, you know. Isn't England's the return great. prophecy, though, more about assuaging grief and helping people to kind of cope with the idea that they're no longer, that they're now living without their savior, without their martyr? Maybe because, no, well, don't, um. The return prophecy actually was in like the second or third round of uh, Arthurian legends. Okay. So his early legends never mentioned any of that at all. He was never, you know, he died and he died. Maybe. And his had, body was taken off. Maybe humans his, had a, a healthier relationship with death. Well, in the early versions. Well, they probably had to deal with it a lot more than we do. But, uh, you know, his body was taken off to the island of Avalon uh, to be laid to rest. And then someone later on came around and said, and he will return one day, you know, at the, you know, but it put their own handwriting at the end. So uh, what I'm hearing you say is blame the poets. Yes. Okay. <laughs> blame history. Blame the poets. Blame the songwriters, the uh, the bards, and the skalds. They're the ones ancient... who deliver these prophecies as a way of telling people to tune in next week. Right. Or uh, the and uh, you know give it a happy ending. Right. Because every story, if it's taken to its natural conclusion, ends in death. Right. And you know you want to end on a happy note. Right. Okay, I'll agree with that. That prophecies are delivered by false prophets. Right. Yeah, I'll agree. By give you people that. who just want to give you something to, so you don't feel bad. So that brings me to the point, the whole point of this entire discussion, which is that we are surrounded by prophets right now yes. in pretty much every realm of media, whether they're analyzing sports, whether they're predicting the outcomes of a game, whether they're analyzing politics and predicting the outcomes of an election. We're surrounded by prophets. And most of these prophets, let's be honest, they just want you to tune in next week, right? And what they're saying is, come back and hear more. And everything I give you, you'll want to, I want you to come back and hear more. 
Um, the more you tune in and the more I have to say, I don't have to be accurate. I don't have to be right. I just have to be telling you something that uh, may want you to come back and hear more. Right. Are we any different as writers on our show? I don't of course know. we want people to come back and hear more next week. <laughs> come back next week. Uh, join us on Tweet Chat, Tuesday, 6 p.m., hashtag WSChat. Thanks for being here this week. Find the show notes out on 